Uh, every now and then in, in, in my effort to preach God's word expositionally, that is to, to work through the whole of scripture one chunk at a time, every now and then I end up biting off uh, too big a chunk. <laughs> and I think that that is today's case. As we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, today's passage is Philippians 3 verses 1 through 11, and it is so chock full of dense, historical, theological content. I probably should have spaced this passage out over a number of weeks, but I didn't, and that's okay because each of us as followers of Christ has access to the same Holy Spirit who gives us understanding of his word and the ability to obey it. And so I'm gonna jump right in because I've got quite a bit of teaching to do before I get to the, to the preaching, if you will. Um, so thus far in this joy-filled letter, Paul has urged the believers in Philippi toward the kind of lifestyle that is worthy or reflects the gospel, the good news of Jesus. He has urged the Philippian Christians toward unity, despite the myriad of disagreements that threaten to separate them, that threaten to separate every church. And in last week's passage, Paul wrote to explain to the Philippians that he is sending to them two exemplary, godly men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and he's doing so that Timothy and Epaphroditus might bless and strengthen the Christians in Philippi. That's where we are so far And now I'm going to invite you to follow along as I read verses 1 through 11 of chapter 3. Paul shifts his focus to warning the Philippians of a danger that is on the horizon for them. And before I read, Father, we ask for your blessing as we give ourselves to the reading of your word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. So you might agree now that I've bit off a bit too big a chunk. (laughs) There's a lot here. I'm going to begin this morning with a really lengthy introduction. And in that lengthy introduction, I'm going to try and teach and I'm going to try to explain what we've just read verse by verse. And then toward the end, in about two or three hours, (laughs) I'm going to highlight three observations all pertaining to the mark of God's true people. Beyond the marks of our ethnicity, beyond the marks of culture, beyond the marks of our denomination or our distinct theological convictions, there exists a mark of God's people and we are going to, we see it, we we are told it in this passage. And so for the next little while, please keep your arms and legs inside the ride at all times because we are going to clip, okay? We're going to move. There's a lot here. Uh, it's going to feel maybe a a little unlike me. There's not a lot of illustration here. I'm I'm really, this is teaching heavy this morning, okay? Put on your thinking caps. God, help us to put on our thinking caps and renew our minds here. Verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul starts by telling the Philippians... I'm about to tell you something that I've told you before, but here's the reason why I'm repeating myself. It's for your safeguarding. It's to keep you safe. I want to warn you of a danger that is on your horizon. Verse two, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. All three of these warning statements is aimed, uh, are aimed at one particular target, a group of false teachers who are seemingly beginning to infiltrate the Philippian church. These are probably the same, same breed of false teachers who'd already infiltrated the church in Galatia, known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers are the dogs Paul is here referring to, and we need to understand Paul's vision here is not some cute litter of domesticated puppies. He's talking about a mob of these mangy, feral dogs, the kind that we keep our kids from, okay? Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. And then here, this third warning gives us a better idea of whom Paul is talking about. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, He's not talking about a group of zombies. I know that's a big thing right now in 21st century America. He's not talking about a group of mad scientists who are going around Frankensteining each other's or bodies of people together, you know, all that. He's talking about a group of actually very devout Jews who are intentionally traveling around to the specifically Gentile churches. The churches that are almost completely comprised of Gentiles, that is non-Jews, 
such as the church in Philippi. That's whom the Judaizers have come to. And they're coming to these churches. They're claiming to be followers and teachers of Christ. But if I were to summarize their message quickly, it might sound like this. Greetings, Philippians. I'm glad to be here. But in order for you non-Jewish believers to truly be counted among God's beloved people, well, your males must be circumcised according to the law of Moses. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the story of the Bible, this might sound out of left field, but it's not. It's not at all. In Genesis 17, God commanded Abraham, the father of Israel, to be circumcised as a mark of a covenant. And if we were to summarize that covenant, it might sound like this. Abraham, God said, you don't yet have any children, but I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to multiply you into a multitude of nations. You're not going to procreate all these little offspring on your own. I'm going to do it through you by my promise. But in order that you and your sons might remember that it was me, not you, who made you my people and brought forth from you a multitude of nations, in order that you would remember that, I want you to circumcise your foreskin. And here's why. I want that mark of circumcision to serve as a constant reminder to you when you bathe, when you change your clothes, when you go to bed with your wife. I want that mark of circumcision to serve as a constant reminder of who you are and how you came to be my people, not by your own doing, but of my doing, my promise. That's a rough summary of how and why these, uh, well, God gave the mark of circumcision to Abraham and the people of Israel. And hopefully now with that quick little summary, it might help us to understand why these Judaizers here in Philippi are expecting the Gentile Philippians to be circumcised. But there's more going on than meets the eye. At the time of Paul's writing this letter, Many of the Israelites, including these Judaizers whom Paul is warning about, they had lost sight of two important things regarding circumcision. Number one, they had lost sight of the fact that circumcision had always been intended by God as an outward mark of an inward reality. A mark itself is not the reality. A mark points to a reality, and maybe coming to your mind right now, is the, is the uh, baptism. An outward demonstration of an inward reality. I once heard a pastor during a funeral promise the, the grieving family that their deceased dad was in heaven because he had been baptized as a young boy. He promised them. Never mind that the man, you know, his life really hadn't any demonstrative effect of trusting in Christ. Never mind that he'd actually been given to idleness and laziness, spiritual, spiritual stagnation, alcoholism. But because he had been baptized, promised the pastor. He had been baptized. Your dad now is, is basking in the presence of Christ forever. That's called putting way too much stock in an outward sign that is supposed to be pointing toward an inward reality 
And this is the same error that is going on in the background of our passage concerning circumcision. At the time of this letter, many Israelites, including these Judaizers, were putting so much salvific confidence in the outward mark of circumcision that they weren't even concerned about the inward condition of their hearts, which were dead in idolatry. And so the first thing these Judaizers had lost sight of, these Judaizers who are coming into into Philippi, to demand that the, the Gentile believers be circumcised in order to, you know, to belong to God's people. The first thing they'd lost sight of is that circumcision wasn't always, it was always intended by God to be an outward mark of an already inward reality. But the second thing that they had lost sight of is found in passages such as Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, where God eludes to a future day when he would himself circumcise his people directly in their heart. He would purify and set apart for himself people's hearts. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul refers to this as the circumcision that is made without human hands. And now here, in Philippians 3, verse 3, we need to see and savor, or savor what Paul is declaring. That time of heart circumcision has come. And this is why he says it this way. For we are the circumcision. He writes to the Gentile believers in Philippi and to us. We are the circumcision, not necessarily because our bodies have been circumcised by human hands, but because our hearts have been circumcised by God's hand. And because of this heart circumcision that we've received from God, we now, second half of verse three, we now worship him by the spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in our flesh. Do we hear what Paul is saying? This is the mark of God's true people. This is how you know whether you are a male or a female, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, whether you are accustomed to the customs of the Jews or not, this is how you know that you are the circumcision, the people that truly belong to God and are counted among God's righteous people. Number one, we worship by the Spirit of God. Two, we glory in Christ Jesus. And three, we put zero confidence in ourselves in our flesh. Now together, these characteristics serve as the mark of God's people. And momentarily, I hope to circle back around to consider them, but I'm going to continue teaching and explaining the best I can through this passage. In verses 4 through 6, Paul then explains why he is the last person We would ever expect to downplay physical circumcision to a church of Gentiles and to us if anyone had license to pressure the Gentiles towards circumcision, it was Paul. 
If anyone might have placed a bit of confidence in his own religious resume, it was Paul. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I am a, well, nope, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day in accordance with the law of Moses. I'm not only of the people of Israel, notice, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a devout and loyal tribe. Actually, it was the tribe of Israel's first king. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. And as to the law, I was a member of the strictest order, the Pharisees. Verse 6, as to my zeal, I used to persecute the Christian church and I used to try to silence the very message I now preach, and I'm now preaching to you. And as far as righteousness under the law goes, I was blameless. In other words, I observed it to a T. If Judaism had a hockey team, I'd be its captain, right? So those Judaizing hotshots who are pressuring you Gentiles to circumcise your bodies, even though God has already circumcised your heart, those Judaizing hotshots should back the heck off because they can't hold a candle to my religious resume. Paul's kind of showing us why we should expect him to be the last person to be writing these things to us. But then in verses 7 through 8... Paul makes a stunning turn. But whatever gain I had from it all, whatever I had gained by my upbringing, my accomplishments, whatever profit, whatever advantage, whatever boast I had, whatever pious work I had done that made me feel maybe more accepted, maybe more secured, maybe more loved by God, whatever gain I had, I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In fact, Paul adds in verse 8, I count it as rubbish. And we need to know that Greek word is very coarse Rubbish is a PG translation in the English. You might as well say, I, I think Paul cusses for a second to give us a little glimpse of that is how little my religious merit badges mean to me now. And then Paul closes in verses 9 through 11, essentially saying what his aim, his desire, his goal. It's to be found in Christ, not possessing a law-centered righteousness of my own, but possessing the faith-centered righteousness of God, that I may know Christ, verse 10, that I may know the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his suffering and in his death, and that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What a, 
glorious completion to a very climactic passage. And it is a passage, for the sake of time this morning, we're not going to be, and we're never actually able to tap out a passage on a Sunday morning. You know that. For the sake of time, we're not going to be able to go super deep in it this morning, but it's a passage that is worth our continued exploration and study. Maybe today when you get home, maybe tomorrow or a day to come, it is worth that we really dig into this passage. But here is our takeaway for today. The mark of God's people. The mark of those whom God truly counts as his own. Because he has circumcised their hearts. He has set them apart. Paul tells us in Philippians 3.3, 3, the characteristics, the mark of God's people. God's people worship by the Spirit of God. God's people glory in Christ Jesus. And God's people put absolutely none, zero, zilch confidence in ourselves, in our flesh. We'll look for the next few minutes at those three characteristics that make up the mark of God's people. If you ever wonder, if you ever wrestle, oh, am I a believer? Am I one of God's people? Number one, God's people worship by the Spirit of God. So when you sing and when you speak and when you serve, do you do so with a blank, vacuous mind and an unfeeling heart? Or when you sing, and when you speak and when you serve, do you do so with your praiseworthy creator God kindling your thoughts and gladdening your demeanor? Do you, do you think about God while you're singing to him and speaking of him and, to with, and with other people and, and serving? Is God on your mind? When you wait on God, when you... Hope, and when you repent, do you do so with a sort of wish upon a star karma-like superstition? Or when you wait, and when you hope, and you store up hope, and when you repent, do you do so believing that your living creator God hears you and loves you and is working for your good. When God's people worship him like this, through singing and speaking and serving and waiting and hoping and repenting, etc., when God's people truly worship him like this, we need to understand what Paul is telling. We're not doing that on our own. It's not like we woke up one day and we thought it would be a good idea to sing to a God we can't physically see. 
God's people worship him. The only way that you are able to do so and that I'm able to do so is because the Holy Spirit has awakened and animated you to do so. 1 Corinthians 12 3 tells us no one can even acknowledge that Jesus is Lord except by the miraculous enabling of the Holy Spirit. Do you acknowledge? Is Jesus your Lord? Is he your king? Is he your master? Are you absolutely imperfect? And oftentimes, are you a train wreck of right? Yes, I am. I don't have it all together. But I believe that Jesus is my Lord. He's my master. He's my king. And when I serve him and when I speak about him and when I sing, yes, he's in my mind. Is he yours? God's people worship by the Spirit of God. We're only able to do these things and actually acknowledge him because of the Holy Spirit in us. In a moment... When we come back together, when, when our brother Ed comes forward and we get to be led in us, when we get to sing, all I have is Christ together, can we just be blown away by the fact that the only way that we're actually able to truly glorify and acknowledge Jesus as Lord in this way is because God has circumcised our hearts and given us his spirit? Can we just be blown away with gratitude? First characteristic, God's people worship by the Spirit of God. The second, God's people glory in Christ Jesus. We, in the Greek, kauhaumai in Christ. It's glory, yes, it's boast. We boast in Christ. We rest all of our confidence in Christ. The song that we're about to sing is, is, is fittingly titled, All I Have is Christ. That's it. God's people don't see Christ as a first stop on our way to deeper things. We never graduate from Christ. God's people don't see Christ as the starting line. He gets us started on our, on our own religious potential. God's people don't treat Christ as the co-pilot who merely helps us get to heaven. God's people understand that through and through, all in all, we have been bought, sought, and brought into God's forever kingdom through the it is finished of the resurrected Christ. All the work is done. All of it. All of it. Justified, sanctified, glorified, signed, sealed, delivered by, for, and with the righteousness of Christ. As Paul writes to the Colossians, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Past tense, delivered, done. He has qualified us, past tense, qualified, done, for an internal inheritance of the saints in light. And as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, and he has caused us to be born again to this living hope that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for we who by God's grace are being guarded by faith. You ever thought about faith that way? Faith is the thing that I'm hanging on to. Oh, I'm gonna hang on to you with all my power. No, 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 we're being guarded by the gift of faith because we inhabit, we are inhabited by the Holy Spirit as a gift from God. We are God's people, we are the circumcision. One pastor this week tweeted out 
on our deathbeds, none of us are going to be comforted by our own obedience. We could have done so much more and we should have sinned so much less. So on our deathbeds, our only comfort in life and death is Christ. His death for my sin, his righteousness counted to me. When I think through it this way, and I really just kind of parse it out, it is, it's, it's to my embarrassment that I am not just making that much more big a deal of Christ in my life all the time. I mean, he is glorious. Lastly, number three, God's people put no confidence in the flesh. The, the New Testament uses the term flesh in two ways. One, to describe our physical bodies, yes, but two, to summarize our sinful nature, our thoughts and words and actions that are bent away from God and toward ourselves. And it's that second use of the word flesh that Paul is using here. And listen, when we place our confidence in ourselves, in ourselves, it inevitably leads to either pride or despair, right? When your confidence is in what you do, you either always feel despairingly disqualified, not even worthy to go into the schoolhouse to pray and to sing with the saints because I'm such a wretch. Mm, yep. But maybe you're putting too much confidence on the you part of it and not the, what Christ has done on your behalf part of it. So either we're always feeling despairingly disqualified if we're so about ourselves, or we feel so hyper-qualified that we make everyone else around us feel disqualified. And that person is not fun to be around. And tell me if I'm ever that person. I'm prone toward that. I'll use this. In college, I worked as a, a household painter for a very wealthy man in Columbus. And the only reason why I was allowed onto the property and then allowed to stay on the property and then welcomed regularly to the property is because of the guy who vouched to get me in. There was background checks and all sorts of different things, but when I was with Jamie, his name was, I could come onto the property. And then while, as long as Jamie was around, I could stay on the property. And as long as Jamie was around, I was welcome on the property. But if Jamie were to, to, to go away at any point in time, guess who was going to get absolutely cast out of the me. Jamie was my admittance. He was my welcome stay. All I had was Jamie. That sounds very blasphemous. I don't mean it that way. He, he was the reason why I was not only welcomed in, but allowed to stay as long as I would like, as long as he was there. And it didn't even, and what I'm getting at, and maybe that illustration is dangerous because it might then encourage us, well, there's no effort that needs to go into the Christian walk whatsoever. No, 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 no. 
Paul's already talked in earlier uh, Philippians 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The gospel is not opposed to effort. The gospel is not opposed. In fact, it, re- it requires. There, there is this understanding. God's people, we are straining. We are striving toward the goal. The upward call of God in Christ. But there is no earning. There is no earning. Effort, yes, should be. Earning, no. And all of us know what it's like to be around the person who's earning their way, right? We've all been to those churches before, right? Oh, I, I mean, I, I forgot my, my tie. And I, you know, I, am I not like welcome in here? Like, I, I, you've all been there. No confidence in ourselves, no boast in our accomplishments, because we know that even our best behavior does not earn our place, nor does it maintain our place in God's kingdom family. That is the essence, that is the thrust, that is the drive of what Paul is getting at here for the Philippian Christians who are being pressured to adopt an outward sign of something that God has inward, already inwardly done. This is the great climactic unfolding of all that had been alluded to in the progressive story of Scripture. It is glorious, and we ought to glory. All I have is Christ. And so this morning, if you, brother or sister, are in any way doubtful, am I God's, am I truly God's, do you worship by His Spirit? Do you, when you sing and speak and when you serve in the church, do you do so with him in your mind? God's people glory in Christ Jesus. We have no other place to base our confidence. No other boast that we have. No other confidence. No other glory that we have. We have been bought, sought, and brought into God's forever kingdom through the it is finished of the resurrected Christ. That is good, good news. And lastly, God's people put no confidence in our flesh. And I would love to be a part of a congregation of brothers and sisters who really write this on our hands, our rearview mirrors, our bathroom mirrors, all of it. Don't put confidence in what I'm doing. Put confidence in who he is and what he has awarded me. Jesus has awarded me through his death burial and resurrection by faith and that we would then together glory in Christ striving toward the upward call of God in Christ make an effort to to walk obediently but not making that the basis of why we are gathered together and why we are accepted amen so very teachy yes would you pray with me and then we're going to sing and let this be an opportunity for us to truly sing, to worship by the Spirit of God. We're going to sing together. Let's pray first. Father, this is a dense passage in your word, but I thank you, God, for even just the little nuggets of truth that we are able to extract in a short amount of time. And Father, I... Um, All too often, I I, I need to confess that all too often, I base my welcome in your presence based upon my performance. 
and you are not opposed. In fact, you expect obedience, but you are opposed to the earning of our place before you. None of us has earned that. We are all here by grace. So Lord, I pray that you would now in this time that you would enable us by your Holy Spirit to worship you, to glory in Christ. And as we do, Lord, that we would be casting off all the little tidbits of, of what we feel we've earned and the things we've done that make us extra pleasing to you. That, is, that, that doesn't have, there's no room for that here. We glory in Christ and in Christ alone because he is all we have. And if there is anyone in this room that would like to just mysteriously, they're wondering a little bit more about Christ and how to be found in Christ that they may be marked as God's true, as your true people, God. I'm, I'm, I'm here, Lord, help me to, to talk them through. And now we sing together, Lord, be glorified as we worship you by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.